Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, welcome to Village Global SolarPunk. This is Lucas Banyo, and I'm here today with my co-host and partner here at Village, and Dwayne. Today, we have a very special guest, Catherine Boyle. Catherine is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where she invests in companies that promote American dynamism, including national security, aerospace and defense, public safety, housing, education, and industrials. She was previously a partner at General Catalyst. Prior to GC, she was a general assignment reporter at the Washington Post. Catherine holds a BA in government from Georgetown University, an MBA from Stanford, and a Master's of Public Advocacy from the National University of Ireland, Galway. And now, on to the show. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me, Anna Lucas. It's great to be here. Well, we're very excited about your recent writing. And could you define a little bit about what you mean by American dynamism? Sure. Yeah. So so we define American dynamism as companies that support the national interest and that support all of the problems um, that Americans need solved. So when you think about how problems used to be solved, when you think of big, massive problems like education, housing, public safety, these were companies or these were these were problems that used to be solved by the federal government. Um, and the federal government wasn't solving them. It would, be, it would be solved by state and local, but these were really things that, that you, you will you know, elect politicians and politicians make policy decisions. And then they solve those problems through government. And one of the things that we've realized is that technology increasingly is having a role in solving those problems. So when you think about companies that exist in public safety, there's a number of companies now that are helping law enforcement officials, helping cities manage the questions of how do we keep our people safe? Um, companies that, that exist in education, when you think of what happened during COVID, particularly for, for early childhood education, you know, parents were often asked during COVID to educate their children. And how are they doing that? Well, they relied upon companies that had been built that were able to work remotely. And so the thing that we've been seeing, this is a broad trend in terms of decentralization and, 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 de- and privatization that's been happening for the last 40 years, but increasingly we're seeing technology pick up the slack of where government has fallen short. And we think that's a great thing. Uh, we think that a lot of the best builders in America today are deciding to build tech companies and to solve really, really important problems uh, that affect all Americans. And so we're really proud to support companies that, that we believe are making America a more dynamic place. And just to double click on that, does that imply that these companies that you're backing are planning on revenue from the government or do they also plan on revenue from the private sector? It's it's a really great question because one of the things that we've noticed about companies that end up selling to government at the end uh, is that oftentimes they don't start out as government companies. Sometimes they start out as consumer companies or competing with government. So one of my favorite companies in the portfolio is a company called Flock Safety, um, and they've built uh, an incredible network of uh, cameras that they've put up. Uh, they started out as a consumer company uh, selling to HOAs across America. They started out in Atlanta. And what they realized is that most crime in America, and particularly most violent crime in America, is, is done with a car, with a vehicle. And so if you can create a cheap license plate reader that only looks at the car, so doesn't look at people, doesn't look at any sort of trends, but really just looks at the, at the vehicle, um, and you have a network of cheap cameras around a city, you can actually solve things like Amber Alerts, where if you're a law enforcement official in a, in a 
city like Atlanta and a child is stolen um, and the child is a baby, like the likelihood that you're going to find that child after 24 hours of a child going missing is actually quite low. But if you have cameras and you have a network um, that plugs into to, you know, central law enforcement agencies across various districts, you can potentially solve that crime. And the reason I bring that crime up is because that's one of the, the, the use cases that I always point to that Flock has been very helpful with. They've solved Amber Alerts across the country because of this license plate reader that they've built. And so, you know, they started out as a consumer company. They were, you know, selling directly to HOAs, but ultimately became so important that law, law enforcement started buying this product. And now they, they support law enforcement across America. And so our view is that these are great companies. These are companies where, you know, citizens have, have defined a problem themselves and built all across America and, and ultimately uh, become, you know, very important tech companies that work uh, hand in hand with government. So you don't have to start out selling to government. Oftentimes, a lot of education companies don't sell directly to government, they sell it to, to citizens, but they're doing the work of, of civic society and helping to make, make America stronger. And can you elaborate a little bit? What's your experience seeing companies do that transition? Because we have lots of founders listening who are probably thinking about that. Mm-hmm. What, what advice would you have for them? Yeah. So, so it's interesting because with some companies, you know, you don't necessarily want uh, a dual use product or, or, or a product that's going to make the transition. Um, you know, a company that I'm, I'm very close to is a company called Anderol that sells directly to the federal government, um, you know, building next generation defense products. And they've always sold directly to government. And, and what's interesting is when you talk to a lot of people in the defense world, they really encourage what's known as dual use technology, which means you're going to sell to government and you're also going to sell to commercial. Well, in the Department of Defense, like it's actually very difficult for a startup to work on two problems at the same time and actually be able to solve the needs of government as an early stage startup, which is, I think, one of the hindrances to a lot of these companies that are either you know, doing hardware software or building AI products for the government is that if you're getting a mixed message of, hey, we're not going to buy you until you're a massive company, uh, go, go sell to commercial, you're going to build the product in a very different way. And you're not going to build the product to solve the needs of government. So I think something that's changing is a lot of founders are realizing it's actually great to sell direct to the Department of Defense. It's great to sell direct to the federal government and that it's actually more advantageous to, to start a company with a singular mission rather than a dual use mission. So, so in the case of Flock, I think they're a good example in that they, they realized that it was sort of a natural expansion of how they were working. They were selling to HOAs and then they got inbound from, from law enforcement. But ultimately, their, their product, you know, you don't have to change the product necessarily in order to, to, to meet the needs of both law enforcement and, and consumers. And I, and I think that's, that's different when you're selling to federal government. That's interesting. And are you seeing more of that trend? I guess there's dual use and then there's commercial off-the-shelf technology buyers. Is commercial off-the-shelf technology buying increasing in your view? Uh, so increasing for, for what type of products? Oh, uh, well, for any products, I was just wondering if for, for is government ready or buying more of jet mainstream consumer products? Would oh, you yeah. Say? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's it. That's an interesting question. I think government is buying more software that, that solves specific needs and understands that the software that they have, especially if it's, you know, if you're talking about um, the, the intelligence community or if you're talking about the DOD, they realize that the products that they have bought have been built to spec with requirements and that that is not how you build software. So one of the things that I feel like I'm always on a soapbox about is that a lot of how the procurement system is built for the federal government, it is built in the same way that you would acquire tanks, in the same way that you would acquire submarines. It's how you acquire hardware. You say, we need X, Y, and Z. Here are the things we're looking for. And if you don't uh, say that the car needs wheels on it, it's not going to be built that way because we have a prime contractor system that follows everything to spec and that will do it on contract in perpetuity if allowed to do so. 
And that's the opposite of how we build software. You know, the, the great founders of software companies have a vision for how you build. Uh, you, you have a problem in mind and you're trying to fix the problem. You're not necessarily trying to follow requirements that have been set out by a customer. Uh, so that I think is one of the biggest problems is that the procurement system actually still has a very specific guidelines of how they require or, or how they put out requirements. And the government over the last five years has changed in that regard. I think that they're they're really trying to figure out ways to work better with, with early stage software companies, understanding that they can't tell a software company necessarily how to build software uh, in, the, in the way that they tell hardware companies or the way they tell, tell Lockheed Martin how to build um, you know, an aircraft carrier, say. And Catherine, I, I know that you and Trey Stevens ha have talked a lot about what needs to change in the procurement process. Is your perspective that we need a complete reboot? Like what, what, what do you think are the core things that need to change so that we see more Andros uh, yeah. come out? So I, I love this question because the, the thing that I often hear from the DOD when I, you know, and, and this is not what I'm suggesting, we, we don't need to burn down the house. We're not saying light everything on fire and start from scratch. In fact, we don't have time. Like this is this is I think the thing that is that has become a realization for a lot of people operating in the DoD and a lot of investors is we don't have time to completely change how how companies are, are are procured through the U.S. government, but I think we can change the culture. And and what's good is that like you know cultural shifts in companies are oftentimes the hardest thing to do, but they don't require going through to Congress or going through legislature and trying to trying to change sort of everything from scratch. So I think like the the thing that we that we're advocating and that I I would love to see more is you know. Five years ago, the DOD didn't even talk to Silicon Valley. I mean, this is like a modern thing in terms of the DOD being excited to work with startups. And so I think what needs to change is there needs to be more incentive for the procurement officers, the people making the decisions about the types of technology they're using to give contracts to startups versus contracts to, to Lockheed Martin. And there has been this view that like it's it's risky to go with startups. Who knows if they'll be around? Maybe it's better to go with the companies that are literally 100 years old. I, mean, I think uh, the thing that a lot of people um, in startup land always find surprising is that when you think of the big five primes that the government works with, they were all started in the 1920s. Like these are 100-year-old companies and they're building technology for the U.S. government. So the thing that I think really needs to change is procurement officers need to realize that software is very different than hardware and that for certain types of requirements, for certain types of technologies the government needs, going with a startup is less risky than going with Lockheed Martin, than going with a contractor who's going to subcontract it out five times. And I think that message has gotten across. And I think like people are starting to understand that enough technologists in Silicon Valley want to work with government and government is starting to realize, okay, this is how venture capital works. This is how companies work. And it's actually a good thing that they're moving really fast. It's not a bad thing that they're, that they're, you know, building the way that they're building. And one of the things that you said is we don't have time. Like, can, can you explain what you mean by that? Do we yeah. not have time because of China? Do we not have time because the decay of some of our institutions have, have got, gotten to a critical point? What, what don't we have time for? Yeah, so I, I, I talked about this at the Reagan National Defense Forum, which is a, a big conference of basically everyone in defense that happens every year. And I think this was this was surprising, um, but something that was sort of a wake up call when when we all sat down and, and discussed it. It's that, you know, it's been five years, six years since the Defense Innovation Unit came out to Silicon Valley and said, we want to work with startups. This was a, a very bold thing under um, then Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, who was part of the Obama administration. So it's actually a, a movement that started under the Obama administration where there was a realization that there's all of these great technologists in Silicon Valley and we need to work with them. And, you know, the conversation started happening then. And I think investors heard that call. 
Uh, I heard that call and a lot of us got really excited about companies that wanted to build for our country. And so we started investing in these companies. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. government said, OK, like we, we want to work with you. We're going to give you these small contracts that are called other transaction authorities, OTAs. We're going to give you SBIR, small business grants that basically allow you to work with us without having to wait five, 10 years for a program. And the thing that we have been saying for five years as investors is that's great. A seed stage company getting a couple million of revenue from the government's great series A, but at a certain point, these companies have to transition from R&D projects with the, with the US government to programs. They have to get programmatic dollars from the procurement officers. And what you've seen over the last five years is that investors have wised up that that is not happening at a, at a wide scale. Like it just hasn't happened. It's very difficult to make a transition. And so while the government has put on all of these bake-offs and, you know, you'll, you'll hear the, the Secretary of Defense say, you know, we're so proud. We've, we've given out 2,500 SBIRs to, to defense technology companies. I mean, Andreessen Horowitz doesn't have 2,500 companies. Like there aren't 2,500 companies that are worth investing in when we look at just how, how great the technology is and how useful it can be over time. And so the thing that makes me nervous, and I think the thing that makes a lot of companies in Silicon Valley and investors nervous is that, you know, we're on 18 month time horizons, like as an early stage startup, as many of your listeners know, like you're making day in day out decisions that are very difficult and that you're worried about running out of capital. You're moving fast. You're trying to build a team and you don't have five years to wait for the government to get its act together and think about what it wants to procure. And so that, that I think is why we're running out of time. And I, I think you, you know, investors will give, you know, companies have passed once, com companies passed twice if they're still waiting on getting these production contracts. But if if the government ultimately doesn't decide that any of these companies are worth production contracts, you're going to see capital dry up, and that that is something that I fear will happen. And I know it's something that I that that a lot of the um, people at the DoD fear will happen as well. So it's something we have to be honest with ourselves about and make sure it doesn't happen over the next two years. And is there a recommendation that you have either for government decision makers to practically make that happen? Yeah. So I think like one of the things is it's not a question of dollars, you know, like there, there's always this like, oh, well, well, should we create a separate pool of capital? It's like, no, like, like the procurement officers have the dollars to procure technology. And it's not even a question of the technology being not being built in the right way. Like we've now had 10 years of just government advising a lot of these early stage startups on how to build. And there's a number of people that have spun off of companies like SpaceX and Palantir. I mean, these are companies that know how to sell to government and, uh, and have tr tremendous empathy for the customer. I mean, that's the other thing too, is like this generation of founder, you know, many of them are veterans. Many of them have, have worked at these companies that understands how the DOD works. Like th there is an empathy for the customer. And so they're, they're willing to build exactly for those needs. The real thing is getting the procurement office to make decisions about which companies are most important. There's a, there's a saying in the in the U.S. In the U.S. government, the DOD, which is that government doesn't like to pick the winners. But ultimately, if you don't pick a winner, then you're only picking Lockheed Martin. And so that that is the real problem. Like, there's going to have to be a here are the companies that we want to support. Here are the ones that we think are the most important and most critical for our needs. And we're going to give them contracts, even though it might feel a little scary that they're a startup you know, it's actually safer and it's less scary than going with a, a you know, a hundred year old prime that doesn't know how to build artificial intelligence. Right. And we've talked a little bit about DOD and the federal government. How do you think about startups interacting with federal and or I'm sorry, state and local governments? It's a great question because I think it's a totally different sales motion. In some ways, you know, there's an argument that, that there's a, a, a very, obvious procurement process, even if we're complaining about the procurement process with the DOD, whereas it's less obvious to work with, with city and uh, cities and, and states. Um, with cities and states, you know, every, every city is actually structured 
different. Um, you know, like there's, there's some cities that are really good at making purchasing decisions. There's other cities that are bad at making purchasing decisions. Um, California has things known as piggyback laws where certain counties will follow other counties if there's a contract. Um, but every state is different and every city is different. And I think that's also one of the barriers we've seen is that for a lot of the kind of early companies that have really paved the way, I look at companies like Mark 43, for example, where it's like they were, you know, selling directly to state and local police. You know, these, these are companies that like, it's, you know, it, to figure out the sales motion, to figure out how to work with various various cities, you know, it's every city is different. So it, that's actually one of the things that I think is often made it harder for companies that are selling direct, uh, you know, kind of quote unquote gov tech for state and local is actually like learning with, with every state, sort of like learning with every customer being very different. So, but I think that that a lot of things also have changed on the on the state and local side too, where you now see winners, you now see companies that really understand kind of the needs of states. Uh, you know, it's not 10 years ago anymore. That's the thing that I also like to say is, you know, like a lot of people in Silicon Valley say, we'll never work with government because government's so slow. It's a laborious sales cycle. I don't want to have to work with lobbyists. And the thing is, government is sort of this last vestige that really hasn't modernized and they're still using systems that are in cases 25 years old internally to run the functions of government. And so there, there's a number of, of companies that I think are, are, are kind of benefiting from the tailwinds of we have to modernize because this stuff doesn't even work anymore. Uh, so, so I do think it is an interesting time to be selling to state and local as well. And just to double click on that, is there any advice you'd have for founders about how to navigate that process? Do you start in certain friendly states or do you use one municipality to make a use case or, or a case study? Well, yes. Yeah, so, so definitely on the use case, I mean, that can be super powerful if you have a, a you know, a a product that you have built tailor-made for a city and a city is very much your advocate. Like, I think that can be very useful. I don't want to say that any state is better, but like every company, depending on its product, will have a very different strategy of which state it goes to next. Um, so I do think that's a huge port, uh, part of it. But yeah, I, I think uh, I think there's there's a ton of opportunity now. It's just finding out that sales cycle based on, based on your product based on who your advocates and champions are going to be, every city is different in terms of its priorities. San Francisco has very different priorities than the city of Miami. Um, and, and because of that, you're going to have to either, you know, tailor your message, build your product and define like which, which cities you're going to go to first um, as part of whatever you're building. And is there such a thing as an early adopter city? Should entrepreneurs be looking for that? You know, it, it's interesting. There are some cities based on what you're building that are, that are, you know, more interested, like, like, but, but, the flip side of flip side of some of those cases is that there are sometimes early adopter cities for R&D in the same way that there are early adopters and within the DOD for R&D and doesn't necessarily always translate to procurement dollars or, or real contracts. Um, so I, I think in some ways it's, it's one off depending on product. Um, you know, there, there are certainly cities that are that are far more likely to, to acquire technology for use cases like public safety, and they're much more forward thinking about that. But it could also be related to, to labor shortages. I mean, that's definitely one of the things we're seeing right now with public safety, which I think is a very interesting time to be to be building for public safety is that there's just labor shortages across all cities. And so when you think about kind of the impact that then has, it means that there's more room for technology um, that, that even if budgets aren't necessarily increasing, um, there's just more of an acute need. Um, so I think it, it, it's it's one of these things where depending on the product, depending on the part of the city that you know that you're talking to or selling to, uh, there's a lot of opportunity. But it's not going to be a one size fits all. Okay, this city is just so much more forward thinking on tech. 
And Catherine, on an adjacent topic, two very neg- negative trends that we've seen is on the one hand, we've had a massive centralization in some of the sectors that you talked about. I think in defense tech, it's crazy to think about that 100 years ago, we had 100 plus companies and now we only have you know five big ones. Yeah. Uh, another, another negative trend is you know the massive evasion uh, of talent from government. Nobody yeah. wants to work in government anymore. Is this about to change? Uh, why now? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a great question. I actually don't think that that we're going to see a renaissance of people wanting to to work as bureaucrats in Washington. Uh, I, I think part of part of the reason why we're so excited about investing in companies is that what we're seeing is that people who want to solve these important civic problems, they go to the private sector and they build. They consider themselves builders. They're technologists. They know that a group of people who have a vision can get something done much faster than trying to go through, you know, the the process of, of getting elected and arguing in Washington over policy. And what I think is interesting is, you know, there was such an aversion to backing these companies, maybe 20 years, 10 years ago, there was such a view, actually, like, there's so much to build in pure enterprise software, there's so much to build in consumer, we're not going to touch government. And what is exciting about what we're doing at American Dynamism and with Andreessen Horwitz is we're saying, actually, we love these problems because these are massive markets that have been ignored for the last 20 years. And they're the things that the people of America care about. People care about building more housing. They care about making sure that transportation and roads are functioning. Like they care about good, solid infrastructure. You know, they care about agriculture. They care about uh, public safety. They care about aerospace and defense. These are massive markets. And when you look at just how big companies have gotten in these sectors, I mean, SpaceX is a perfect example of talent begets talent, contracts with the government begets contracts, and that the government, once it learns to trust a new customer, uh, ultimately will continue working with that customer. So these are great sectors. It's just the messy middle of trying to get through um, the graveyard, which which you know the DoD is well aware of. Um, to be able to build these things, you know, it's 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 one of these things that once you once you move through the hard part, you you earn the trust of the customer and you get to continue building. So I think there's enough use cases and enough uh, examples of success over the last ten years where the reason why this is such a great time is because the founders are telling us that they want to go after these big problems. And the topic of institutional decadence uh, has been a hot one, uh, yeah. especially over the last couple of years, you know, especially since the pandemic. Uh, we have Martin Gurry with the revolt of the public and then the decadence society, uh, society uh, and, and a couple of others. Uh, you, you've certainly seen, and I, I've heard you talk about some of this yourself, given your prior background in, in, in media. Do you think that some of this uh, deterioration that we're seeing is somehow self-inflicted as a way, as a reaction to fight change. Uh, is that is that a good framework to think about uh, what what we see? Yeah, no, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, the the causes of decline in trust and public trust and sentiment. I mean, like it, it, in, more, in some ways, it's like the the causes. It's been going on for a while, but it just accelerated during COVID. And so, I think people far smarter than me will look back and say, okay, why did this happen and who inflicted it? But the more important thing for us to realize, and this is like the pragmatist in me, is it's not changing. All public institutions have lost trust. And this is the Pew Research Forum talking when it does its surveys every year. You know, newspapers, it's something like 25% of people actually trust mainstream newspapers. Public education, trust has declined over the last two years. Uh, Public safety, trust has declined over the last two years. Uh, Pretty much every major category you know, and, and government itself, if you look at Congress, I mean, the, the trust levels of actually trusting the federal government is just extraordinarily low. And so when you think that like all of these important public institutions have lost trust, it's an important, it's a a, a, a good time for companies to, to step into that void and say, okay, we are going to make 
trusted systems. We are going to make sure that, that things are working, that, 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 the, you know, that we're solving the needs of, of society and building new institutions. And so I do think there are people who, who worry about kind of, okay, yes, if, if, if there's mistrust and, and, and there's this malaise of people not wanting to, to believe that their, their existing institutions are working, then, then something will fill the void. But I don't think that there's ever been a better time to build a company that's trying to solve these problems. And what you see is you see founders who are very transparent about their missions. I think Andrew and Flock are great examples of just mission-driven founders who, who say, like, here's a problem and we're solving it. Uh, you see it in education as well. There's there's founders like uh, like Rachel Carlson of Guild Education, who I think is a perfect example of someone who wanted to upskill the American workforce and is doing it through private means with companies and 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 solving a critical policy issue using using private dollars. Um, so I think that's something where you know people are always skeptical of new institutions, but when things are working and when people are very transparent and building great companies with with great cultures, that's something we should celebrate. And more and more founders are seeing examples of success and realizing that that they too can do it. And perhaps related to this, you know, we've seen the rise of nihilism uh, in our country over the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. You know, we uh, some people think that the world is going to end in a few decades. Some people don't want to have kids because they think that the world is too bad. Uh, we have young people falling in love with socialism again. How do you think that these are related to the sort of institutional decline uh, that, that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a broader worry and a broader conversation. But I, you know, I think it was a Pew Research Forum again that asked Americans, you know, who it's sort of the famous political question, like, how do you see yourself better? Do you see yourself as better off than your parents' generation? And it was something like 68% of people think that they are worse off than their parents, that their children would be worse off than them. And when that high of a percentage of Americans feel that the future is going to be worse than the present especially when we're in the middle of a global pandemic, um, that, is, that is problematic. Um, and that is an attitude that really has to shift if we're going to see you know, major changes in this country. Um, and the, the belief that I have, and I think the, the belief that, that a lot of builders have is that the only way you combat this belief that you know, a generation that you know, saw 20 years of war in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's a generation in extraordinary student debt. It's a generation that's worried about climate change, that's worried about all of these issues and sort of the, the fear that is really front and center of our, of our media every day. And so the only way that you combat that is by building things that work and by solving these big problems and doing it as fast as possible. And so in my mind, you know, we say it's time to build. That's a political philosophy. That is a belief that's neither red nor blue. It's, it's believing that solving the problems in this country that people are worried about, that make people say that they're going to be worse off than their parents. If you solve those problems, you can fundamentally change how people view the future. And so to me, this is, is one of the most important missions that we can take on. And every founder I talk to that's building in this category, you know, believes that they can change this, the, the course of this feeling. And so I'm actually very optimistic. I'm very hopeful that founders are going to be the answer to this problem we have. And is the way that founders can earn trust is just through ROI, like you were talking about, Rachel, at, uh, Carlson at, at Guild Education, or are there other suggestions that you might have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that we've learned with, with, with companies like Andrel is just being super transparent about the mission. Like this, this is the thing that, you know, it, it, there's sort of a generation of, of companies, I, I won't name them, but like, don't be evil is a pretty, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty evasive term. Like who, who knows what that means? But like this generation of founders, I think is very forward thinking about this is what we are building. Um, and, and these are the ethics, you know, it's like Andrew has an ethics memo that it's posted publicly about, this is how we think about working with the department of defense. 
every recruit goes through ethics training and understands like, this is what we will do. This is what we won't do. These are how we make decisions in the company. And so I think that that is one of the things that instills trust is when you have leadership that is very transparent about where it stands, uh, that communicates publicly. I mean, the other trend that, that I am extremely excited about and encourage all the founders I work with to do is to go public and go direct, tell your own story. Like if you have something to say, uh, you know, and, and in some ways, Elon Musk has pioneered this. But like, if you have something to say about what you're building, and if you want the public to know what's going on, you should just say it directly and not rely on any anyone to tell your story for you. So I think that that has led to greater trust among startups um, or, or, or trust among the public looking at startups saying, okay, well, at least we know where this person stands. At least we know what they're building and why they're building it. And so the more that we see of that, of founders just being very authentic, telling their story um, and building in public, I think we will we will feel um, that, that the public trust these companies a lot more. Catherine, on the topic uh, of, you know, how founders can actually help us break through this institutional malaise that, that, that we've seen over the last few years, uh, you've written an article recently about how Starlink can save the American mother yeah. and how the future of cities could look, could look very different than what we have today. Yes. How do these topics relate? Yeah, no, that that I, I'm so glad you brought up this piece because this is something that's like very personal to me because a year ago I was, you know, about to about to have my first child. I was living in San Francisco. Uh Gavin Newsom had announced uh, an actual curfew. Um it was, you know, it was 20, I guess, yeah, a little over a year ago, 2020. And I said, you know, I'm just gonna go to Florida temporarily, um, you know, spend some time with family, you know, welcome my first son, and and then I'll be back in California. And in that short period of time, what I realized was. There was there was no one that was you know it, it, it wasn't like I needed to go back um, that I was completely productive in terms of supporting my founders that I was able to to have this kind of extremely I would say rich life on the internet that that I think is the future of knowledge work and I don't think we fully realized how COVID has transformed knowledge workers in that way and what it means when the entire world has instant access to the internet. And, and this is something I think a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley don't realize because it's like they have access to internet, but like there are people who are going to McDonald's parking lots or Walmart parking lots or Burger King parking lots, and they are trying to get internet. There are people in rural communities that do not have access in the same way that someone living in a city does. And so Starlink changes everything when there is reliable internet in all corners of the world for people to say, if I'm working online, if my livelihood is predominantly done via Zoom, as you and I are, are talking right now, um, if, if, if I can work in that way, what does it mean for how I live my life? And I think it has extraordinary repercussions, not only for federalism, which I, which I can talk a little bit about, but, but more for the family. Because when, when I talk to, to working mothers about the thing that makes it very difficult for them to think about having larger families or even to think about starting a family, it's the fact that childcare is so expensive. It's the fact that they have a one-room apartment. It's the fact that they believed this myth that if you go to a fantastic school and take out $250,000, $300,000 of debt, that somehow magically that debt goes away. Um, and it doesn't. They're in a point where it's very difficult to think about you know, having children, building a family if you're, if you're stuck in a San Francisco apartment. And so everything I think changes for, for, for this generation and for future generations when we say, actually... You don't necessarily have to leave home. You don't have to take out that debt. Um, you can learn in different ways. You can live in different ways. You don't have to move to a really expensive city. You can move it to, you know, you can live in a rural community or you can live in an exurban environment and you can have the life that you want and the city that you want and have more space 
and, and save for the life that our parents and our grandparents had um, when things were not as expensive. And so I, I think that the more of our life that we move to the internet, and this is sort of where I, people accuse me of being a techno optimist in many ways, but I think it's the only path and way forward. Like the more of our life that can move to the internet and our work life, the more of our personal and private life can exist in the physical world. And we can, we can shape that with a lot more intention. And so I'm doing that. And I realize I'm one of the very fortunate people that can start doing it. Um, but I think this trend is going to continue for 10, 20 years. And that more and more of us are going to see that the office culture, the mad men boardroom culture, where people lived in the suburbs and went to the city or lived in the city to be close to the boardroom. It's built for the 20th century. It was built before the internet existed. And so I think the most important technology for this is going to be just worldwide internet everywhere and a cultural shift where people intentionally say, if we care about mothers, if we care about families, if we care about our community, we're not going to force people to leave their homes and, and live in one room apartments. I mean, the impact that, that Starlink will have on federalism is also very interesting because what you're already seeing in COVID is that you used to have to live in the city where you worked. And when everything moved to Zoom, the cities that benefited were second tier cities across America. And when you look at just the inflows during COVID, the cities that have, or the states that have grown the most are Texas and Florida. And, and the state that has lost the most is California or yeah, California and second to New York. And so what is interesting about that is at a broader scale, when people can move anywhere and where, when it is normalized to work from anywhere and when it is possible to work from anywhere because there's internet accessibility everywhere, you're going to see just this mass migration to communities where, where people have like values. And, and that was always the spirit of America. Like we were always a federalist nation. Uh, you were supposed to live around people who, who agreed with you on the things that were very local, like education, which is decided at the local level. And so I think that will be an extraordinary thing when talented Americans don't have to make the decision. If I want to do something, if I want to work for a company, I have to leave my home and I have to leave my community and I have to go a place where I don't necessarily believe the values of the people who are in that that city or state. What does that mean for the future of communities? Uh, I think it's interesting because sometimes I, I sometimes I think that techies have killed the meaning of the word community because yeah. now we think that 20 people on a Discord channel is a community. Um, yeah. But it sounds like you think that internet the internet is going to enable a very different type of community yeah. that we don't hear a lot of people talking about anymore. Yeah, and I and I think we'll we'll see a, a greater divide between our 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 private lives and our public lives. Um, and I think our public lives will very much be lived on the internet. Uh, we're already seeing this. I mean, and, and this like dovetails into to Web3 world too, where it's like, you know, people are avatars now and that's that's great. Like people can be who they want on the internet. They can have their lives. They can they can work on the internet. They can socialize on the internet. But like, but you have your your physical life as well. And that can be different. It doesn't have to be tied to a city. It doesn't, they, they don't have to be as tied together. And, and I actually think that'll be very liberating for families and liberating for physical communities. Because if you look at what's happened over the last 70 years, it's been a brain drain across the United States where the most talented individuals were told, we will give you government subsidized loans to leave your state, to go to whatever private university or public university that charges a lot of money but, but you should leave. Like that was the message that, uh, uh, you know, the, the last three generations was given. And, and I think that that, that can change. Um, and if that changes, you'll see a return to rural environments. You'll, you'll see a return to exurban environments where maybe there isn't, um, you know, a, a sort of concentration of talent and capital in five cities. We're already seeing, I think the Miami movement, uh, Lucas, which you and I are a part of, uh, you know, it, it, that's a perfect example of this, which is that, you know, people can live where they want to live. They can congregate where they want to live. 
they can they can choose to be closer to family if their families are there. And, and I think we'll just see more and more of that. And the best part about this, and I'm sorry, I'm ranting here, but the best part about this is this is the promise of technology. Like this is what we said tech would do. We said it would decentralize everything and give equal access to people. And, and it, we said that it was going to be a democratizing force. And, and now it's happening. So I, I think it's super exciting. Um, and we're just we're just seeing kind of the early days of, of the transformation that tech is having on, on work and life. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. You've talked a bit about seriousness and you've written about this topic. Can you yeah. say more about what's on your mind? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think seriousness, you know, when I say seriousness, people often think that I'm saying people can't be funny. Um, and, and I wrote a piece called On Seriousness and I talk about how South Park is actually one of the most serious serious programs on television. And the reason why it's lasted something like 27 seasons, is it 27 now? It's, it's over 20 seasons uh, is because it's so serious. It takes itself so seriously. It takes the art of making fun of everything uh, very seriously it's to the point where they've had death threats. I mean, these are extraordinary, you know, like extraordinary creators that that have seen mocked everyone and probably, you know, tried to get canceled by everyone um, and, and physically harmed by, by, you know, or had threats of physical harm. And I think like that's that's a perfect example of what seriousness is. And it's what founders should learn from. It's taking your mission so seriously that you do not let irony and nihilism creep in. You don't let these ideas of, you know, people saying, okay, things can't be done. You know, what, the, the thing that I said in the piece is that like, you'll know you're serious if people are laughing at you. I mean, look at how people treat Web3. Look how people treat Bitcoin. Bitcoin's been around for, for you know, 13 years at this point. And it's like, it's still considered, oh, is it actually, you know, is it actually a thing? It's like, it's mocked mercilessly, even though it, you know, it, it, like usually you see this sort of like mo- mocking cycle that happens with, with technology where it's like Airbnb, for example, where it's like people are like, that will never happen. People will never deal with strangers. People laugh at it. They make jokes about it. And then like attitudes start shifting. And then it's like, well, no one laughs anymore. Like some of the most serious founders, people are still laughing at them. I use Elon Musk as a perfect example. Like people are still laughing at Elon trying to get to Mars. And like, look at what Elon has achieved. People still mock Tesla. They still mock SpaceX. So it's, it, to me, you will know if you are serious and you're taking your, you're being intentional about your mission. You're not being ironic. Um, you're, you're allowing humor, but you're not, you know, you're not um, allowing irony to seep into your mission. Um, if people are laughing at you and mocking you and, and really trying to, in some ways, put a target on your back. Um, so, so seriousness is something I look for in founders. I think like um, it, we need more of it in this world. We need more people to take their, their mission and their intentions and their actions very seriously and to know that they have big things ahead of them. And shifting gears one more time, Andreessen Horwitz is, seems like trying to be in the vanguard of having a conversation publicly with government around policy shifts. Can you give us any insights into the thinking there? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing that I've said that I've said about American dynamism is that, you know, build is a political philosophy. And I, I feel very strongly about this. It, it is not, um, you know, we're not coming in and saying, okay, we care, you know, we're, we're taking like, you know, a, a side of the, of the Republicans or a side of the Democrats. Like we're really trying to have a conversation about what will transform this country. And that is building, that is solving big problems. So in terms of like, how we have conversations with Washington, it's always in the service of educating on what we know, which is technology. Like when I come and talk to the Department of Defense, I'm not talking about military strategy. I'm not giving my views on, you know, potentially what should go on with Ukraine. I'm not talking about policy. I'm talking about this is how technology works. And I'm educating them on how I do my job so they can make better decisions to work with us. And the the reason I think that is so important is 
the government is actually like, and it's, I will say specifically the DOD is filled with very smart people and they understand what they need to do to get the job done, but they often do not know how we think. You know, they have so many people who, who are, serve in the military, they know how the military works. They don't know how private sector works. So a lot of my role is to educate them. This is how investors make decisions. This is what founders are thinking through. And if we can find common ground, we can work together. So the, I think that is that is ultimately like, you know, that's the vision of how we work with Washington, you know, how David and myself worked with Washington when we're talking about American dynamism is what can we share with you about how startups work and about how these founders work that can help you make decisions of how technology can support you and your goals. And Catherine, it's very common for us within tech to talk about, you know, what we think the government doesn't understand about technology. But yeah. what, what about the flip question? You know, what, what doesn't people in tech understand about government? Yeah, no, this I love this question because like they really are antithetical ecosystems in many ways. And like the it, it's not that there aren't amazing people on both sides. It's that they're very different people with different incentive structures. So the biggest difference between Washington and Silicon Valley is that they're playing very different games. So Silicon Valley is a positive sum game. Like anyone who emails, you know, it, it's one of these things where like when I came to the Valley, I emailed a bunch of people and a bunch of people who were successful and smart answered my email and wanted to, to have coffee with me. And the reason they did that is because they didn't know whether I was going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And that is like the mentality of Silicon Valley is that all these really interesting young people come in, you support them, you, you have this positive sum, there could be many winners, you know, even, even the way that the venture firms work, it's, there's many winners often. And so there's just this idea that abundance is a good thing and that more is good. The game in Washington is the opposite of that. It is zero sum. There are elections every two years. There's a presidential election every four years. And because of that, one party is in power, one party's out of power. People actually lose their jobs every two years. This is something we can't even fathom. It's like, if you lose an election, you lose your staff. And a lot of that staff will go into a think tank and they'll wait until the next time. And it, it, it's that is how Washington works. And because it is zero sum, it can't possibly understand why tech operates the way it does. And we have a hard time understanding the incentive structures of games that are played every two to four years where there is a winner and a loser. And so... I actually think we need to be a little bit more empathetic to how Washington works because there is a, a rational, like there's a rationality to, to why people act the way they do. And there's a reason why the government procures the way it does and, the, and why it's skeptical of tech and the sort of abundance mentality. Um, but I think the more we can talk to each other and educate each other on this is how Silicon Valley works. This is, you know, how early stage startup works. Like, and, and that has been happening in the DOD. Like, that's a great thing. Uh, but there are a lot of misunderstandings, and I think there are going to be things that just never are able to work together because the incentive structures are so vastly different. And Catherine, one of the things you talked about is how the role of government has been privatized to a degree over the last couple of decades. Yes. Uh, and I think you would agree, conversations around the role of gov government can get very tribal. It feels like young generations today lack a sort of Milton Friedman or Friedrich Hayek who made such a compelling case for private enterprise mm -hmm. decades ago. How do we get those conversations started? Is that in some ways what you and Isaac Sinzi are trying to do with American dynamism? So it's an interesting question. I think like the companies speak for themselves. You know, I, we can say, yeah, there aren't, you know, political philosophers or economists that have really made a compelling case. But, but there's people like Elon Musk, who I think have inspired a generation of young people to build. 
Um, and so I just think it's different. I actually, I, you know, it, it, one of the things that, that I've, I've been really struck by is when I was at a, a conference for heretics recently. Um, and at that conference, I asked everyone that I met, would you run for office? And these are, you know, mostly tech people, you know, and it's supposed to be a conference where people disagree with each other, right? They can say whatever they're thinking. And everyone agreed on this one point. They said, I would never run for office. And, 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 and I think that's what's striking is there's a, a population of builders and they do not want to work in theory. They don't necessarily want to, to run for office and get involved in politics. In some ways, I think that's a bad thing. I think we need people of different perspectives and builders to, to think about engaging in politics at some point. But, it, but it's just antithetical to how people think. And so I think like the, the most we can hope for at this moment is that the builders themselves, the political philosophy they have of building and solving problems is enough. It, it speaks for itself. Um, and I think it's true of, of many great startups. Um, and so, so I think that that is something um, that we're going to just see more of is just that, you know, there's, there's a reason why people follow Elon Musk. There's a reason why people follow Palmer Lucky. And it's because they have strong political philosophies that are, that are lived in the products of what they are building and in the mission of what they're building. So just maybe sum up the conversation. Let's finish with a quote that I know means a lot to you, which is uh, JFK, uh, we choose to go to the moon. What does it mean to you? And how does that relate to what you're doing now? And what can people take away from it? Yeah, you know, it's, I actually think one of the things that we're missing the most in society is that, you know, the, we had a generation, you know, the greatest generation that fought in World War II never expected life to be hard. They, they never, or, or they never expected life to be easy, sorry. Like they, they knew that life would be hard. And so that was the generation of we choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. There was sort of an understanding that there are missions at, and particularly public missions that are more important than, than the citizen and more important than what's hard on you. And I think we had this change of, you know, a lot of people point in the seventies and it was definitely the rise of therapeutic and, and, you know, a number of sort of movements towards interiority and movements towards, you know, finding oneself. And that that is sort of, I'd say the predominant view of American society now is that the individual matters more than the collective. And so the reason I love that quote, um, you know, why do we choose to go to the moon? It's because it's a hard thing and it's some, and societies can do very hard things together, but you have to have the will to do hard things. And so I, I think that the, the closest we come today to doing those things happens in building startups. Like it is a revolutionary act. You know, these, these sort of important missions aren't necessarily done at the government scale anymore, but they are done by people moving boulders at pills. And those are founders of companies and the people they bring on the team. So I, I do think that spirit is alive and we need to see more of it. Um, and, we, and we need to expose it. We need to talk about it. And we need people to see that that is actually the meaning of life. <laughs> Well, we couldn't end on a better note than that. So thank you for that inspiration, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.